This is my family, mental illness, and me. My name is Pamela Jenkins, and I'm a researcher at the Mental Health Foundation. My mum, Irene, lived with a mental illness. There were voices only she could hear, and she could quickly switch from feeling very high to very low. No one ever talked about it with me when I was young, even though I knew my mum was often unwell. When I was in my 20s, that's when a psychiatrist told me that my mum had schizoaffective disorder. Sadly, I lost her quite recently to COVID-19. But even though she's gone, her mental health will always be a huge part of my life. In each of these podcasts, I'll speak to someone else whose parent has or had a mental illness. In the UK, there are at least 3 million children of parents with mental illness. If you're one, it's really important that you know you're not alone. My Family, Mental Illness and Me is a podcast series from the charity Our Time, with support from the Mental Health Foundation. Our Time champions and supports children of parents with mental illness and their families. We've put links to more information in the show notes. Our chat this time takes us all the way down under to Australia. Our guest has a global profile as an award-winning mental health nurse, academic and researcher. What's less well-known, however, is that her interest in mental health is at least partly rooted in her own upbringing. I'm Kim Foster. I'm a professor of mental health nursing in Melbourne, Australia, and I lead a mental health nursing research unit. And I'm also the child of two parents with mental illness. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for being here today. It's really, really lovely to meet you. You know, we're here to to share stories about parental mental illness, and you had two parents who had a mental illness. So why don't you just start by telling me a wee bit more about that and what you first remember mm-hmm. about it? Yes, well, it's a, it's a big story, mine, but um, basically my mother had a psychotic mental illness, paranoid schizophrenia, and I'm the eldest of six children. What appears to have happened, um, because she didn't get treated for a long time for her illness, but after each of her pregnancies, she appeared to develop a postnatal psychosis. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, way back when, when I was born, which was <laughs> a little while ago, uh, um, you know, it really wasn't treated. Although she was hospitalised, I don't think there was ever any real diagnosis and treatment for many, many years. Unfortunately, because she was unwell often after each pregnancy, my family life was very disjointed, I guess. Really, by the time my youngest sibling was born, the family had actually split up and um, my youngest two siblings were fostered out to distant family and my other siblings and I were put into children's homes. Gosh. So my story, yeah, is as much about growing up in children's homes and being detached from my family and have our family all split up basically as it is about my mother's mental illness. Oh, goodness. Um, Later on in life, my father also was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia when I was quite a bit older. So it is an unusual story, I guess, you know, to have both parents who ended up being psychotic and treated and medicated for for their illness. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, it's it's so great to talk to you because... That is so often the case that 
children don't stay in the family home as a result of the parental mental illness. And that's something that we need to remember that so often children do go into care. Um, so what what is um, one of your first memories, would you say, of, of your mother's mental illness? She, she was... Um... She was quite delusional, you know, obviously I didn't realise that at the time and she had a lot of thoughts around uh, they were very religious delusions and she used to quote the Bible to us for hours on end. Um, She thought that cartoons in the newspaper had been written about our family so she would read them and show them to us and say how they were about us. She was um, suicidal at times uh, and I found her after one of her suicide attempts. I was quite young really and so those memories I think stuck with me in particular because I was older than the other children. I was probably about five or six when those sort of things happened. So they're the sorts of things I remember um, about her in childhood and and also um you know, just our our family life being very fractured. My father found it very difficult, I think, to cope. And, um, you know, there was quite a lot of conflict in the family and those sorts of things. But, yeah, she certainly had some, you know, amazing delusions when I think back now. And we would sit for hours, we'd have to sit and listen to them we'd sort of come out at the end of it, my sister and I, and look at each other and say, do, do, do you think that was real? Or, you know, so we'd sort of question the the delusion, but yet part of us also kind of believed them because we were very young. You know, it was about the Bible and how we our family was in the Bible and all of those sorts of things. But my mother also had an issue, you know, with my siblings and so some of when they were born, particularly my brothers, she seemed to have a particular issue with the boys and so they were often, um, she thought there were problems she with them, you know, that they were mentally um, delayed or that they had illnesses. She thought my youngest sister was the devil's spawn, as she called her, right? So, you know, because of her her illness and so, you know, those things, although in one sense, as adults, we can sort of laugh a little bit about about that, yeah. as we have. Yeah. Not at her, but just at the sort of yeah, ab- humour of Absolutely, it. I understand that completely, yeah. Yeah. It was also, of course, quite left quite a mark, mm-hmm. I guess, on my siblings. Um, so it was sort of hurtful as well as, you know, humorous in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, good goodness. I, that must have been just so confusing for a young child and and you say you know you didn't know what to believe that leads me to wonder how it was explained to you by other grown-ups at the time did anybody talk to you about it well yeah not not really explained to us you know because as I said although she I know that uh she had she went to hospital a couple of times when she made sort of suicide attempts as those were sort of general hospitals not mental health um, hospitals and she did end up going to one um, psychiatric hospital but again I really don't know that they really got a grip on what was happening with her until many years later. She actually ended up 
because our family was split up, our parents divorced. Uh, we were in the children's homes and we spent all the rest of our childhood in those homes. Uh, she ended up over time deteriorating, really. Um, she didn't remarry. Uh, she worked for on and off for a while but became progressively more unwell and never got treated really until many years later. She ended up being scheduled, as we would call it here in Australia, or sectioned, where she was forced to go to hospital. And really, although that was not a nice experience for her, I think, and she didn't want to, it was really the start of her getting treatment and rehabilitation, housing, because she was homeless for many years. Gosh. She rode the train systems and uh, when we had grown up, she was homeless and on the trains and refused to get help. This is a very long story and it went over many, many years, but eventually she did get treated and she did get housing and she did forge a life for herself and had some quality of life, I think, which was great. And did you maintain a relationship with her after you went into care? How old were you when you went into care? Well, I, we were in three different children's homes and I was, and I don't remember the first one because I was very, very young, you know, only a few years old. Looked after family members because when she first became unwell was when she had me and I was about three months old and, you know, the story goes in the family that she literally left one day and, and went interstate and that the neighbour heard me crying in the cot and she didn't come home for many months. And so my father's family sort of looked after me when I was a baby until she came back. And so I then went into a children's a, a sort of baby's home for a little while at one point. And then from about the age of eight, I think I was eight at the time, my sister and I went into a children's home and then a few years later, we were moved into another children's home and we stayed there until I finished high school, basically. Our grandmother, our mother's mother, really took on, I guess, some of that mother role and she would visit with my mother. And so we did see her on and off during childhood for, the, for a weekend or a night or things like that. But we never lived at home again and that, that contact as we got older, um, sort of she was quite rejecting of us, I guess, um, and I think that was part of her illness. So she would sort of kept us at arm's length a lot of the time. So we ended up not really having a close relationship mm -hmm. ever mm -hmm. after. And did, did you understand, do you think, what was happening and why? No, certainly not as a child. I mean, I knew something was not right. <laughs> and I think I was quite frightened of her sometimes when she was unwell. It was really only when she became, she was scheduled, as, you know, we call it here in Australia, and, and then we had a family meeting. But I was already nursing by that point, you know, we're all adults by then. And there was psychoeducation, really with the social worker um, doing a bit of family work, which was good, but very late, yeah. of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gosh, you speak about it 
with such strength. It's absolutely incredible. Your father, where was your father at this point? He basically left. They were both very young when they got married and I think it was very hard for my father. It was a really difficult situation and, of course, at that point there weren't the community services and family support services, et cetera, that there might be nowadays or the awareness. So really he left and took off, you know, he sort of went interstate, went overseas and really we had very little to do with him for many, many years. And I think, you know, later on he sort of acknowledged that he'd sort of left us basically. But I think that was all he could do at the time. You know, he couldn't cope Mm -hmm. with it all at the time. And you say he also had schizophrenia that developed later on. What age was he and what age were you? Well, yes, (laughs) that was the thing. He, uh, it was a surprise, I guess, for all of us, but... I was, uh, you know, in my late 20s, I think at the time, I went nursing after I sort of left school because I needed somewhere to live and I needed money and a career. So I could live in the nurse's home and I kind of, you know, offered me a career path. And that was really important when I look back. But I went into general nursing and then I went into mental health nursing. And part of that, of course, was probably to try and understand what had happened and I was nursing actually I was working in a psychiatric hospital and I was pregnant with my son and I my father became very unwell and he came to our place and I thought you need help like he was psychotic he was paranoid he thought people were trying to gas him he'd sort of closed up his flat with towels everywhere so the gas couldn't get in And he actually said to me, I I want you to take me to the hospital because I want to, he thought that people were after him and after us and he wanted to protect us and he said, take me. So he voluntarily went to hospital, you know, and he was there for a while and he got treatment and uh, he continued having medication, et cetera, after that. And he was about, because he was very young, excuse me, when I was born, He was about 50, which is, you know, quite old, uh, I guess, uh, for a first onset of psychosis. And I actually knew the psychiatrist who who admitted him and he sort of said to me, look, you know, I know, you know, it's it is a bit unusual. It's not it's not completely unknown that someone will develop a late onset Mm -hmm. psychosis, but it is unusual. And I think for him it's precipitated by drug use. And I actually thought it might have been drug-induced at the time, but it seems that eventually he was just diagnosed with a a schizophrenia. Gosh, I can't even imagine how that must have felt for you. And working in the field as well, is it something sort of emotionally, do you find it difficult working in the field or do you find a comfort in it? Yeah, that's an interesting question I think for me uh it's you know I sort of on the one hand know too much (laughs) um you know because I was a a mental health professional and so I intellectually I understood what was going on but on the other side of that are all the emotions and 
you know, the natural sort of responses you have when parents are unwell. When he became unwell, I just thought, oh, I can't, I can't believe this, <laughs> you know, um, my other parent. Uh, but, you know, yeah. it is what it is, yeah. right? So, yeah, it's it's been a, you know, I've sort of, I spent a lot of my life compartmentalising yeah. my childhood, I think. I think I sort of was quite detached from it for a while there. And it was only really with counselling and really trying to process some of the impacts of it that I've, I can now speak about it and and feel upset, but not be so detached and intellectualising of it as I did in the past. And and a lot of people do this. Um, they often will detach themselves and sort of intellectualise or be able to talk about a very traumatic past, and it was quite traumatic in a very detached way and people say oh you know it doesn't seem to have affected you but of course it had it's just that's how I was coping. When you were a child did you have any effects of it in terms of your mental health when you were younger or growing up? Um, yes I think probably I, I'm you know by nature I'm a pretty sensitive and probably anxious personality <laughs> And an introvert, right? And I think one of the ways I coped was I, I got into reading. I read a lot when I was a child in primary school. And I think that was a way of dissociating, really. I became quite famous in primary school because I was I won the school library prize because I'd read nearly every book oh, wow. in the library. <laughs> so I think that, that was a way of me. I got comfort in reading because I could put myself into other situations. I used to read The Famous Five, Enid Blyton, because I loved the books because it used to talk about what I saw as a normal family, you know, all these kids going off on picnics, etc. But I think I, I was quite lonely as a child. Probably I, I, I do think looking back in primary school a bit depressed High school was a bit different because I got a, a group of friends at high school and I got involved in a lot of activities and so I think I used to go to their homes, you know, their families would sort of include me in things and so I think things were a bit better uh, when I was in high school. How did that make you feel when you were in other families' homes? Yeah, uh, well, you know, uh, part of it I became always although I was grateful for the sort of sympathy I guess I also really hated being pitied and um, always felt sad that you know uh, and a little bit I don't know about envious but you know I'd go into homes and I think wow <laughs> this is how families are <laughs> but I was great you know I had some really good friends and they weren't they didn't do a lot of pitying of me but there was always that element there with a lot of people um, they felt sorry for you and um, yeah I always had a bit of an issue with that because I didn't like being different and feeling lesser than we were stigmatized at school you know we were known as the home kids and don't your parents want you and you know those sort of things that kids say so I, I guess I got a bit of a chip on my shoulder about not being as good as other people well, that doesn't come across at all. You don't seem at all like you have a chip on your shoulder. Um, no, no, but maybe not now. But 
I think at the time, and my siblings said the same thing, we all just felt that we were like a second class uh, of kid um, because of our situation. And did you ever speak Mm. then when you were older or when you were a teen, when you said you started to develop those friendships and be in those family homes, did you talk about it with these friends or any of their family members about your parents' mental health? A little bit. I mean, these were a very small group of uh, about three, I guess, girlfriends who were very sensible and I think sort of knew enough about my circumstance, but it wasn't something that we talked about a lot. We just kind of got on with, you know, normal life. Um, And their parents, I don't really remember even their parents talking about it with me a lot. They obviously knew and they were generous with me and sort of included me in things. But was never really talked about. Would you have liked yeah. to talk about it more, do you think? Would that have helped, given that you're um, saying about feeling lesser than and not wanting to be pitied? Oh, look, absolutely, you know, and I think now about a lot of the programs and supports for kids, I think it's really important that kids, you know, even if they don't raise it, that other people raise it in a way that's sort of like, you know, this happens to a lot of families how you're feeling is okay and natural, you know, is there anything we can help with, what what do you want to know, you know, those sorts of things I think would have been very helpful for me. Yeah. I'm interested to, to know as you were growing up, did you worry about your mum? Was she on your mind a lot when you were in care? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did. Um, and she was quite, you know, again, you know, because of her illness, et cetera, and she was quite unreliable. So, you know, she we'd planned for her to come and take us out from the home for a day or something and she wouldn't turn up. And I found that really hard. I think both I and my sister who, who was with me. But we knew that at the time she at least had some housing and she had my grandmother's support. So we sort of knew things were okay at the time, but we saw the deterioration over the years and then she became homeless. And I think for all of us that was quite difficult, you know, because sometimes I, I would see her on the trains. You're sort of torn between thinking, oh, dear, and the other side of me feeling embarrassed, you know. Yeah, which is a hard thing to say, right? But it was there was a shame yeah. and embarrassment uh, it, growing up, and even as adults, it was still quite stigmatized. Yeah. Um, it is a hard yeah. thing to say, but it's a really honest thing to say, and I think it's a really important thing for people to hear because it's a completely natural thing. Because we we so often think of stigma as experienced stigma when it comes to mental illness. So the the parent experiencing stigma or the child experiencing associated stigma. But actually, the fact is that the children themselves are embarrassed, which almost sort of translates into a kind of behavioural stigma on their part. That was certainly the case for me. (laughs) Keeping trying to keep everything hidden or keep people away or change my mum's behaviour when we were in public because I was stigmatising a little bit as well because I was embarrassed. 
And mm-hmm. I think it's perfectly honest to acknowledge that and it has to be acknowledged. So I think that's really wonderful that you're that you're being open about that. Mm. Yeah, I think it's important because I've had a long journey, but I've had the great good fortune of getting education around it, you know, even when I was an adult because of nursing. You know, I did my PhD on the experiences of adult children of parents and mental illness. So I've been able to develop an understanding that's helped me to process my feelings around it in a way that is different, I guess, than my siblings who who didn't have that experience. And, you know, that's one of the aims of this podcast. The hope is that it will help other people in similar situations develop an understanding and be able to relate in a way because people who, you know, haven't done PhDs or masters, people who maybe feel alone with it, maybe through listening and hearing your experience, they'll be able to start to begin to develop their own sense of what's happened and their own experience. Just with regards, sorry, I asked you before about um, whether or not you worried about your mum. I think the reason I find it interesting, particularly with your experience, having gone into care, is there's a big question around at what point a child becomes a carer because often with children of parents with mental illness they themselves become the carers if they stay at home I didn't stay at home with my mom after my father passed away I lived with family right. because the, you know my my dad before he died and my mom and my other family didn't want me to become a carer however I worried about my mom all the time so in essence you don't stop becoming a carer just because you're taken out of the situation no, that's right, and and I, I wouldn't have thought of myself as a child carer at the time, but because I was the eldest, there was, and, and this wasn't, you know, it was of the time, I guess, but there was a lot of responsibility put on me. You know, both my mother and my grandmother actually sort of sat there and said, you're the eldest and you need to look after the others. And so I, I was quite serious and responsible and I think I felt responsibility for my siblings and also was sort of quite a well-behaved child, I suppose, because I felt like I couldn't not be (laughs) um, because I'd had this responsibility placed on me. Um, And even my father wrote, I remember he wrote a letter to me. Uh, I think I might have been about 12 at the time, and he said, I've got to go away and I want you to sort of, you know, look after your siblings, you know, brothers and sisters and and all of that. And I thought at the time, you know, I, I think he thought he was doing the right thing, but actually, you know, that was a very difficult thing to get a letter from a father who's saying, I've got to look after myself and I've got to leave, but you you need to sort of look after everybody else. And so I don't, of course, none of this was intended, but it did place, I think, an awful burden on me. Absolutely. Um, you know, I was parentified basically, I guess, by that process and and by my personality, which was always very responsible <laughs> and conscientious and all the rest of it. Um, but it, it meant that I, you know, I grew up far too quickly and then really had to spend a lot of my adulthood trying to repair some of that. Yeah. What did that look like you know, in your adulthood? How did that reverberate then, like? Yeah, I I think I just needed to learn to lighten up and to have fun and enjoy myself and not always feel so terribly responsible for everybody and everything else. 
because over time that did become a problem for me. Uh-huh. You know, uh, it's uh, it it means that you neglect yourself. You know, and I think one of the things for children whose parents have mental illness, you've got to you've got to look after yourself. You know, self care is so important, and that's emotional self care and being allowed to be a kid and um, you know being allowed to be angry and naughty and all those things. Yeah. You know, I had to try to understand and repair some of that and allow myself to be a fuller person if that makes sense yeah absolutely it does and you said that you was it counseling sessions that you said you had when you were an adult yeah I look I realized you know of course going to mental health nursing I realized the importance there of processing some of my past and so I took it upon myself to sort of go and I realised I was quite angry, mm-hmm. you know, about my childhood and, and angry with my mother yeah. and my father and, and that I needed to do something about that. So counselling was helpful to process, you know, and make sense of my past and also to try to deal with those emotions that have been repressed really for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And do you feel after the counselling then that there were any changes that you can pinpoint I wish I could say that I'd had counseling and suddenly <laughs> life was completely <laughs> um, new but I, th- I think for me I've actually gone to counseling several times over my life what I've realized and I thought that I'd come to terms with it all but of course one of the things I realized and one of the counselors said this to me I said why is it that my past just pops up <laughs> At particular times, and I thought I'd processed all of those feelings, and then they there they are again. And the counsellor said, "Well, you know, at pivotal life moments, those significant past experiences and emotions will come up." So that was helpful to me because I, I think I thought I'd have counselling, I'd get fixed, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I could move on. Yeah. But for me, it's you know, as I said, it's been a process of going to counselling, particularly when I've had difficult times. You know, both my parents have died. I did have a difficult time when my mother died and so I have needed to process some things. And so I think it's a lifelong thing really for me. It is and it, it, it does, it lives with you. I think it will always, that experience will always live. Experiences, it's, you know, they, they, they stay with you. They're so much yeah. part of who you are, I think. I'm left wondering if who I am now would be different if my mum hadn't had mental illness. And I certainly think that, and I know that emotional resilience is one of your research areas. Yes. I think the thing about me, and, you know, it's probably no surprise in many ways, I think going into nursing was a practical decision, but then going into mental health nursing I was interested in mental health and I think I was good at it because I understood people and emotions and in a way that, you know, perhaps some people didn't because I'd had my past. But on the other hand, I still had baggage from my past, so I had to deal with it. But I think for me, my past has really driven who I've become. As you say, very independent. I was very driven in my career, you know, very self-motivated. I wanted to achieve I got myself educated, you know, it kind of drove me. So it was a good thing in many ways, right? Yeah. And it's led me to where I am now. 
but being driven and high achieving and independent has a price as well. Yeah. Academia yeah. academia um, is a tricky beast as well. That can also <laughs> that comes with its own troubles. <laughs> sure it does. But the resilience thing, I think what it's done is it's driven values in me. You know, I've developed this really strong sense of social justice and a compassion for people who live on the margins, you know, of life, because I've been there. <laughs> and also, but really for me, I didn't want to repeat the past. So I worked very hard to build a life that would not repeat that pattern. Part of that that resilience was I also don't want to wallow in the problems all the time. You know, I wanted to help myself move out of, you know, a victim status, I guess. So I have really a drive when, when there are problems to try to help, how can we help people overcome difficulty? And resilience is really about, you know, how can you positively adapt to adversity? What are the resources that you can be given and that you can build to help yourself when you go through crap, basically, in life? So for me, you can see my whole career's <laughs> really been kind of driven by my background in a, in a lot, lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, a, it's now a force for good because you're doing such important work. You know, I think what's really important about what you just said is that those, whether they're interventions or whatever that form takes, happen as soon as possible for children of parents with mental illness so that we're not having these conversations when they're much older, having to look back and unpick it all, which probably will still have to happen. But it would be great if they could get the help and support that they need as early as possible. Oh, look, and if one thing out of everything I've learned is, you know, that early, like as early as possible. Yeah. You know, you know when parents, um, even in the antenatal period, you know, as early as possible because you can prevent so much distress for parents and children you can help retain family structures. You can help prevent and offset potential mental health problems for children, et cetera, and so forth. And so really prevention's where it's at. Yeah, it's all about prevention. Absolutely. I'm interested, sorry, just a slightly different tack here, but I'm interested in, you said you've got a son. I just, I'm just interested how your experience has sort of impacted on you as a parent and the experience of being a parent has it affected that at all do you think yeah look I was very conscious of that you know when I had him and I I probably did a lot of work on myself and tried to um because I was aware that parenting was going to probably be a bit of a challenge for me because I didn't have a sort of I guess a good model of parenting and so I really tried I think to uh, went to parenting classes and um, you know I really tried to parent him as, as carefully as possible to give him a stable life and um, you know to give him what I hadn't had really a good education loving parenting and those sorts of things so I was really quite focused on trying to do my best for him yeah. now he might say I didn't do a great job <laughs> I don't know that's up to no, you but, I'm sure he um, but certainly I tried really and I was aware I wanted to break the intergenerational sort of cycle in the family and I don't know how successful I was there but 
look, he's a lovely young man now. And really, I realised recently, you know, we were talking and I realised I hadn't, I'd always protected him. So I'd never really talked a lot about my family and my childhood and my experience. And and I realised recently that probably it's time that I did because I'm not sure he's always understood where I've come from with things because because he doesn't always know the background or my history. And so, um, but yeah, I tried to protect him from a lot of the trauma that I'd had in my past, I guess. And the not talking about it, that's interesting and so understandable. The reason that you've tried to protect him from it is because you don't want to upset him with information of the trauma that you went through. It's not about not wanting to talk about and disclose your mother and father's mental illness. It's just protecting him from the effects that that had on you. My father actually came back into our lives, you know, when I was an adult a little bit, and he actually babysat my son and and those sort of things. So there was a bit of a connection there. And my mother, not so much, but he did. we did meet with my mother occasionally. And so he did meet both my parents. But I always felt sad that he didn't have grandparents, really. You know, my husband's parents were in another country and so he never, I always felt loss for him that he didn't have that those sort of grandparent roles that, you know, a lot of kids have. But, you know, it is what it is and, and he, I think he's developed a really good social network for himself. He's got a lot of really solid friendships and he has some family connections and that's, you know, the best I guess it's going to be in our family. And do you plan to talk to him then a bit more about your past and your mum and dad? Yeah, and look, I mentioned to him that I was doing this podcast and I said maybe you want to listen to some of it. Yeah, that's maybe a nice introduction and he can do that in his own space and time and and come to you with questions. I'm sure I have many. I'm sure he has. he'll have many too. Yes, yeah, and he knows, of course, about, you know, the, the sort of, general information about my past but not really how it affected me. Do you ever think about your own mental health in the future or the mental health of your son? Oh absolutely (laughs) you know and I I was worried about you know worried about both of those things as you do because you know I, I knew enough to know that there was a genetic risk but whether that played out or not was another matter. It was interesting you know for me I I always knew I would never become psychotic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know how to explain that, but I was always quite clear that that probably wouldn't happen to me. But I certainly have had some anxiety and, and depression. Part of that's just been sort of a natural response in a sense to the situation and also because my by nature I'm probably a bit of an anxious temperament. <laughs> and I did worry for my son uh, just because of the genetic uh, risk. But but it was helpful in counselling, actually, when he was little, you know, because I said, oh, you know, I'm concerned. And the counsellor said, well, look, you know, you can just provide him with the best childhood you can and really, you know, it, it will or it won't happen. And so you just do your best to give him a good, you know, grounding. So that was helpful. And that's absolutely, we keep saying this in the different interviews in the series, but just because a parent has a mental illness does not mean that the child or that the children's children will then have a mental illness. And I completely echo what you were saying about that feeling, that knowledge of that's just not there. 
that risk of the psychosis. It's interesting. I uh, I feel the same. My mum had schizoaffective disorder, so she had elements of uh, schizophrenia and psychosis in there as well. And I can recognise that that's not something that's there. And it's a very hard thing to put your finger on or articulate. And equally, I'm also sort of that tendency towards being an anxious person. So if I'm, if anything, you know, if there's a difficult situation or if there's a stressful time, it's, it comes out, it plays out in a, in an anxious way. But again, I can see that that's sort of okay and manageable and not as big a risk. I don't know. It's a very, it's, I'm not articulating that well, but I, I can understand that sentiment completely. Yeah, because it is a big concern, I think, for a lot of kids that, you know, whose parents have been very unwell. Certainly, you know, in my research, for example, I, I talked with a lot of other adult children and, and one of them said, well, I chose not to have children, you know, because I was worried about passing on the risk. And I thought, well, I, at one level I can understand that and at another level I thought, but you can't live your life, in a sense, held hostage to the fact that, you may or may not pass on a genetic vulnerability because we know that that's just one piece of the puzzle. You know, a lot of it's environment absolutely, um, and support and those sorts of things that can offset the genetic risk. Absolutely. And, you know, one in four people will experience a mental health problem at some point in their lives. I think so often we jump to the severe and acute and enduring mental illnesses. Actually, the risk of that you know, is so low. Oh, well, goodness, it's just been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for being so open. It must be very hard to talk about it. Have you have you spoken about it in your work at all or elsewhere? Yeah, look, I have. And actually, I feel now I've come a long way because I can talk with you about this now and feel sad. Like I do, I feel sad which I think is a development for me because I used to be able to talk about it very intellectually and, and not engage with the feelings. But I have talked about it in my work and I felt when I did my PhD I needed to be honest. You know, if we're going to destigmatize and we're going to be transparent about it, I had to sort of, you know, not pretend to do a research topic on something that actually was my personal experience. So I did speak about it and I was terrified. <laughs> I talked at a conference oh. and I, I didn't sleep the night before. I thought, oh, it's going to ruin my career and <laughs> all these people are going to look at me differently. And some people were, I think, a bit freaked out by it because they knew me professionally and yet here they were hearing this whole other story. But actually, you know, I did it for a reason and I have done it a few times, not a lot, but I have spoken at big conferences and deliberately to share my experience and to talk about what helped me through it as a way to help other people, really, and to be honest about it, because I don't think we're going to destigmatize this without people sharing their experiences. But it's it's an interesting space to be in, you know. I'm a professor, I'm a researcher, I have a reputation in the field, and then you stand up <laughs> and you talk about childhood. Um, so that's been an interesting process, but I think it's I think it's been helpful for other people. I've written about it as well um, in in books, um, and so 
I always try to protect my family's identity because, you know, this is my story and it's not for me to share theirs as such, so I never use names or places or uh, or things like that. Um, always try to be careful about that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so refreshing to hear somebody be open about their own experience. What's been great speaking with you today has been hearing from a different perspective of somebody who's gone into care. Often that's lost. We don't recognise that a child of a parent with a mental illness may also be a child who lives in care. Yes, and look, care, you know, even though things have moved on in terms of family care, you know, kids who are fostered out, kids who are adopted, etc., are all forms of care and it's not an uncommon experience for kids in families such as these. So, yeah, which is another reason I sort of share my story because it is unusual, but it also, you know, I know there are many other people who've had sort of foster, fostering experiences, adopting, etc. Yeah. And lots of, you know, in our family, extended families sort of came in to help at different times, took us for holidays and things like that you know, basically adopted two of our our siblings. And so I think that happens in a lot of families. You know, grandparents, aunts, uncles, extended family will take over the care for children. Yeah, that happened with me. That was my aunt and uncle that took over the care. There is a feeling of just that ache of wishing that my mum and dad were able to be present for my boys. It's not an envy that's that's a, in bad feeling or bad spirit, but when you see grandparents active with their children, their grandchildren, there's just a, a, a nice pang of envy of, gosh, how lucky are those yeah. grandchildren? And, yeah. you know. <laughs> oh, exactly. And I still look at people and I think, gee, that's a lovely normal family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whatever a normal Whatever family that is, is, right? Exactly, exactly. Everybody's got something. So, I'm sure everybody, there'll be yeah, something. Yeah, but I always thought for my son I wanted, you know, you know all those events in life, you know, sports carnivals and winning awards <laughs> and things like that. You always want a little cheer squad of family to be there and, and I, you know, that often wasn't there. And for me either, you know, I, I did several degrees and got a PhD and, all those sorts of milestones, I never had family there. So I, even now we'll look at other people who get PhDs and their whole family jumps up and down and goes on Twitter and, you know, there's balloons and I think, wow, wouldn't that be nice <laughs> to have people who are close to you, proud of you. Yeah. Gosh, I hope, I don't mean this to sound trite or patronising at all, but I think what you've achieved is absolutely incredible the way that you've the outcome of your situation and how well you've done with your career and everything is just I take my hat off to you honestly well thank you and look all my siblings were all very different and we've all done different things in our life I, I think all my siblings are amazing for what they've achieved and I think we didn't do it alone you know we've had people around us family and friends that have helped us it's just an example of how a, a traumatic and difficult situation can have an outcome that's really really positive and I think it's so important for people to to hear that it gives sort of hope and positivity and yeah um well thank you for that and look uh, you know it's funny you never 
feel in your life that you've you know, um, that you're necessarily a role model. But I think I've learned over time that perhaps I can share a bit of what's helped me. And and really for me, although you know obviously I've done a lot of work in my life, it's been the people around me. Like even my you know I had extended family. I had aunt and uncle. I had a grandmother, um, two grandmothers, and there have been people in our lives, teachers at school, friends, etc., who really helped me, and colleagues at work, and and so it's been all of that that's helped me achieve where I'm at. And I think for you know if I were to leave it with other people, you know, it's about accepting the hand of help from others or accepting friendship and support from others is okay and it's that's how you get through things and I've had to learn that myself you know to accept help um, and to accept support (laughs) Uh, and that's you know I'm very grateful for all of that yeah people want to help they do just hearing you say about when you got your PhD and not having somebody there to wave the banner you know I was fortunate enough to have family supporting me and my aunt and uncle have always sort of flown the flag for me since my dad died and they, then I went to live with them and they were supportive of me and my mum. And so I, I'm so pleased that throughout your life, you've found those connections that you've then get, gained support from. Incredibly important. Yeah. It's, you know, that notion of it takes a village. Well, it's taken the village <laughs> to raise me. <laughs> um, so, and, and, you know, to all my, my family and friends, etc., and my partner and my son, it really is those connections that help you through. Oh, Kim, well, thank you so, so much for being here and for coming to talk to me today. It has just been a pleasure and I am hoping that our paths will cross again in the future. Um, and uh, we just are delighted to have had you here. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great talking with you, Pam, and to hear your story as well, or some of your story, and to be part of this podcast series. I, you know, I do. I hope it's helpful to other people, and it's, you know, I'm really um, honoured to be part of it. So thanks. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. Speak soon. A huge thanks to Professor Kim Foster joining us all the way from Melbourne, Australia. What another brilliant and hugely insightful chat. I found Kim so inspiring to talk to and I hope that you find her just as inspiring to listen to. Visit ourtime.org.uk for support and resources for children and families affected by parental mental illness. You can follow them on social media at Our Time Charity and we've also put lots more links and places to find information and support in the show notes. Also, if you feel like you're struggling with mental health or you've been affected by anything in this episode, it's really important you speak to someone. There are links to help in the show notes, but also you can contact your GP, the Samaritans on 116123 or Childline 0800 11 Thank you so much for being with us today. Subscribe to our feed so you get future episodes automatically downloaded. And if you know someone who'd benefit from hearing these stories we're sharing, please let them know we're here. That's really important. We really want people to know that they're not alone. This is a Bespoken Media production with music and sound design by Joe Cox. See you next time.